Welcome to Oxford Adult ESL Conversations, hosted by Jamie Adelson Goldstein, co-author of the Oxford Picture Dictionary and series director of Step Forward. In this episode, Jamie is joined by Jenny Curry Santamaria, author of Step Forward, second edition, introductory level and levels one and five. In this conversation on teaching advanced level learners, Jenny talks about her experiences and methods for teaching these advanced learners. Thank you, Jenny, for joining this adult ESL conversation on advanced learners. I'm so happy we get a chance to broach this topic together. Of course. I think it makes sense to start with your memories of your first class with advanced level learners. Could you tell us about your experiences with the class? Actually, my first advanced class was uh, my first class because after I got my MA at San Francisco State many years ago, I was hired into their ESL program, which means teaching freshman English, sophomore English, and an introduction to study skills class for non-native speakers. Mm-hmm. My mentor teacher there was Kate Kinsella. Who, oh, wow. Yeah. And this was really early in her career, but she was already at that time doing a lot of really great work. I was involved in a program she did to help high school students who were severely underprepared get into the the university they were accepted to the university conditionally and we had this class that Kate designed that was a year-long class that these students took that was all study skills and helping them succeed in their other classes basically exactly where we are now yes and so later on when i moved into adult school uh, you know for years the focus was completely on life skills but in recent years since there's been all this interest in academic preparation, suddenly I've been thinking back a lot to that first experience that I had and tackling a lot of the same things, teaching students how to deal with complex texts and taking notes and teaching study skills and all the things that I started off with. The circle of life. Yes. (laughs) Well, let me take you from the skills for a minute into the topics. Do you have some favorite topics? Oh, definitely. One of my very favorite things to talk about is how we get information, um, media and technology, and partly because it's always changing. So there's always something about it in the news, whether, you know, it's privacy or uh, fake news or the spread of false information or the psychological effects of social media. There's always something that's happening right now. Plus, in addition to all the different topics, there's so much individual variety among the students because their experiences with technology and how they get information really depends on what country they're from and um, even bigger differences among age groups. So there's always something interesting to talk about and students always have a lot of opinions. I can see that being a very robust topic. And I also really like to talk about U.S. history. Students are really interested in it, Mm. I think. And another reason that I like to use it in class is because history is stories. And that makes it really great to deal with multi-level because it's very easy to adapt stories to different levels. And so when you have like a biography or a description of an event, something that's kind of uh, narrative, Mm -hmm. it's easy to adjust the complexity. Well, and comparing texts, comparing different people's take on different historical events must be really great at that level especially now. We're seeing so many history revealed moments. Oh, absolutely. Plus a lot of history comes back to the news too. Things that are happening that can be traced back to the civil rights movement or that are related to 
what's happened with Native Americans. Or... There's a, an emphasis on source documents in the CCR standards. I found it very challenging at the beginning level to do a lot of work with historical source documents because the language is so different. Not that it can't be done. I think that that is still really difficult at advanced level because language is just not language that we use anymore. And it can be really difficult. So I would keep it in small pieces of original source documents to help them really work on tearing apart the the language that's in a pretty small piece of text so that they can understand it. Because even advanced students, a long source document, I think is going to be uh, difficult. Well, I'd like to touch on grammar because I know from my experience and from the experience of other teachers I've spoken with that it's a topic of great interest for many advanced level learners. So do you approach grammar differently at this level? Well, I would say yes, because I try to approach grammar in three different ways. And this is probably true at lower levels, but it's more true at the advanced level. So the, the first way is a huge focus on noticing. That's because for students at this level, knowing how to use the form naturally is really a big issue. Mm -hmm. And so because the students are advanced, pretty much anything you want to cover is going to come up in what they're reading or even what they're listening to. So I'd like to get them to identify the examples of the grammar that we're focusing on, really pay attention to the context and how it's used, look at the level of formality, whether other structures are being used with it, uh, to really try to uh, focus on how grammar is used in the context of whatever we're studying. So it's a lot of higher level thinking about the grammar, right? A lot of analysis. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's really important because students uh, have often developed a habit of kind of separating grammar from the rest yeah. of English. <laughs> that, they, you know, that doesn't, it doesn't really work that way. <laughs> So I think it's really important to keep focusing them on those structures. And I do it initially and also as review later. So we read something, we've done, we're done processing all the content. Um, we've done all of our comprehension and our discussion. And then I'll go back to the text and say, by the way, look through this text for the adjective clauses or whatever it was that we studied last time. And what do you see? How, how are they being used? I think that's really important to do. Mm -hmm. But I also, the second thing is that I also think it's important to directly teach structures because students have gaps in their knowledge. And you'd never know where those gaps are. Right. And so it gives them a sense of security if you kind of start from the beginning and, you know, have a lesson where you go through and you teach the form right from the beginning so that they can deal with that. And then give them the chart because a lot of students are very comfortable with charts and it gives them a sense of control and something they can use for reference. So I always try to integrate that more traditional grammar teaching. And is that kind of grammar instruction really useful prior to a writing assignment, for example, because they've got a form that they then hopefully would have a natural use for uh, in the writing? Well, yeah, it is. Although there's something else that I think is really important. But the third thing that I do for teaching grammar is grammar associated with proofreading. So that's a little different than you know, teaching a structure in advance of writing. But mm. the problem with connecting the structure to writing is that you don't want students thinking that they should produce 45 of these structures in their, in their 
text. So I'm a little leery of making that connection too strong. Exactly. Yeah, so that's absolutely it's right. more a matter of teaching the grammar and then we have the writing assignment and then maybe go back. Oh, look, did you use any of these? You know, did this come up somewhere? But also with any writing assignment, usually before I collect a final draft, I'll do a little review of something that they supposedly already know, but that I've been seeing pop up a lot in their writing. So, you know, articles usually end up being the first thing on the list. And so we'll have right before I collect the final draft, a little mini lesson on articles. It's all stuff they've heard before, but they go through their their paragraphs and inevitably say, oh yeah, oh, look at that. What do you know? I have some of these. <laughs> so it's good to heighten their awareness about a particular thing before they write. But for me, it's not usually whatever the grammar structure was of the unit. It's usually something that's more of a, something that they've known for a long time, but they forget to implement when they're writing. Which makes really good sense because even if you were just teaching the structure, you wouldn't necessarily want to assess for it. Right. So let me ask you about assessment. Any tips about great ways to assess advanced level writing? Obviously, you're teaching them how to self-edit. Any other trick that you use in terms of getting people feedback on their writing? Well, I always use student feedback first before I get the final draft. I would always give students something, not grammar, something... (laughs) something to evaluate the writing on that has to do with uh, organization. Are the paragraphs focused on a single topic or is there a conclusion? I would always uh, take advantage of doing some peer feedback. And I think it's important to have a checklist because then if, if they've looked at the checklist and the peers have looked at the checklist and responded to it, then that can give you something to focus on when you're correcting their paper instead of trying to fix all, you know, every single little thing that you find, you can tell them in advance, I'm also going to be focused on this checklist. It helps them focus and it helps you uh, focus on a particular thing too. Got it. (laughs) Well, we've talked a bit about writing. Um, We've talked a bit about reading. What about listening and note-taking? If you could share one thing with teachers who are listening right now, What would you tell them about listening and note-taking at this level? I would tell them that you need to practice it. I mean, it sounds silly, but a a lot of us, we weren't really taught note-taking. We just went to school and we listened and we took notes and nobody really told us about the Cornell notes or about using uh, graphic organizers to to organize our ideas or anything like that. We just kind of did it. Right. And it really helps uh, students to get that kind of direct instruction in ways to organize their ideas in their notes when they're listening. And so I think it's really important to uh, practice those strategies and um, provide the kind of uh, listening texts that they need so that they can uh, practice them. Well, what would be a listening text? What would be an example? I'm not thinking conversation. No, no, I, I, I'm, I'm not thinking conversation. I, I mean, like a mini text, like a podcast, like TED Talk. They have TED Talks that are just a few minutes long, um, something like that, or giving a little lecture on a topic. I was going to ask you if you lecture ever. Uh, yeah, I do. I, I uh, think that students... Uh, like it when you lecture because they always like to feel that they're learning some new content and they like to know that the teacher is an expert who knows about things and and it provides a great opportunity to uh, help them take notes and I think it's you know just really valuable they need to learn to listen to um, extended 
speaking, not just back and forth conversation. Well, that's certainly not just college readiness, but workplace readiness. Absolutely. On a certain level, the lecture can be a a source of their research, certainly if they're going to watch a TED Talk or if they're going to watch another video. Research is one of the hallmarks of the college and career readiness movement. But I'm wondering about the actual research task. Um, I've, I've certainly had students do very, very scaffolded research. Uh, have you had learners be able to do the kind of research uh, where they have an inquiry and they have to take note cards and develop something on the basis of the research? Uh, is that something that's realistic for our advanced learners? Uh, yeah, I think it is realistic, but it does need to be scaffolded. It needs to be organized. That's the trick with the research projects is that, for example, if they're looking for information online, they need help knowing what questions to ask or where to go in order to find the information they're looking for. So they're not just lost on the internet. They need to develop the questions that they're going to answer before they start looking. And they can develop these themselves, you know, in groups or whatever. You don't need to give them to them. So it's a very stepped out process. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So then in terms of guiding the students, what have you found? Obviously, that sounds like the the research question is could be a stumbling block. Uh, and knowing where to go to get information. Anything else that causes a little friction for them that you try to smooth out before they get into the research? I'm not sure about before they get into it. Once they get into it, you also have to teach them strategies for extracting the information that they need because they will have a tendency to copy huge paragraphs (laughs) off the internet. That was going to be my question to you. It's like, do you do a lot of work with paraphrasing? (laughs) I mean, the note-taking really helps with paraphrasing and summarizing, I think, but but it's hard for me as a native speaker when I look at a block of information not to want to say, all of this is valuable. Let me share it with you. Yeah, absolutely. One thing I really like to do is have students tell each other what they learned before they write it down Oh, because, because then they shorten it a lot and, they, and it, it helps them focus if they know that they have to just give a little summary to their group and then take some notes without looking at the text and then go back and you can fill in some stuff that you forgot or, or mm-hmm. but kind of do it that way backwards instead of looking at the text and taking a bunch of notes and then distilling. It. I think it sounds like a really good process. Yeah. Yeah. I think it uh, helps. Information literacy, Jenny, is this something that you teach pretty regularly? Critical literacy, being able to judge your sources and um, identify whether something is uh, credible or not? Yeah, that's really important. And it's part of what I'm interested in when I was talking about teaching about media earlier. You know, that ties in with that. And I think it's essential for everybody nowadays. It would be a wonderful collection of tasks, you know, learn about information literacy and then apply the information literacy to yeah. learn more about information literacy in a research project. And <laughs> I now want to go teach this. Thank you very much. And I, this is this is a little on the frivolous side. Um, we haven't really talked much about vocabulary. And of course, vocabulary is so critical for the advanced learner who's getting into much more challenging text where academic vocabulary and technical vocabulary is going to really crop up a lot. But I just want to talk about idioms for a moment because it's been my experience that every advanced teacher that I've ever met has 
an affection for idiom teaching. Do you fall into that that group? Uh, well, not so much. Yeah, I would say I like I like teaching idioms because you know students love them. I know, but <laughs> but I have a. I, you know, you know, the thing I was saying about noticing with grammar for me, that's even more important with idioms. I would never teach an idiom that didn't come up in something uh-huh. that we were reading or listening to. So like a page of sports idioms wouldn't be your go-to. Never. Because the problem is they can't integrate the idioms into their, you know, into their own speaking until they have a lot of exposure. Because if you just get an idiom just a little bit wrong, it sounds really silly. Idioms have to be exact or they don't work at all. Yeah. So I think it's uh, really important that students uh, see how the idioms are used in context. And it's part of listening comprehension is understanding um, idioms. So that's how I focus on it. Fun thing. Um, did. yeah. That, so, what were you saying about noticing? Um, oh, I think what you said at the end was, a good yeah, I don't know. I was just, would you agree? um, yeah, I was just going to say that I think the, uh, you know, part of the reason for keeping it in, in the, in the idioms in what we're already working with is because time is limited. <laughs> So in general, how much time would you give over to idiom instruction? I think of idiom instruction as part of the uh, comprehension uh, of whatever it is that we're working with already. I don't normally allot a specific time when we're going to go out and we're going to learn all these idioms. Do you set aside a time specifically for idiom instruction? No, I would regard idioms instruction as, as part of... Um, the comprehension and language activities that we do associated with anything that we're reading or listening to already, because they're always going to be there. You don't have to go far to find idiom. And I suppose when it's all part of the same process, then that helps with time constraints in our classes. And this is one of the issues that I see with both ends of the spectrum in ASL instruction. The literacy level learner needs so many things. And the advanced level learner needs so many things. Absolutely. And and one of the answers with advanced students is milking the material you've got. For I absolutely can see that. So I know you've written curriculum and textbooks for a wide spectrum of levels, from the most basic to the advanced. And obviously there are differences between the curriculum for those levels, but what are the similarities? I think you're in a unique position to notice that. Well, you know, there are there are so many similarities <laughs> because when you think about it, yeah, you know, first of all, at the level of content, you're always trying to focus on what will be relevant to students' needs and interests. Mm-hmm. And in terms of language, no matter what the level, you're always trying to keep it as natural as possible so that you're providing models of English as it's actually spoken. Or, or written in a given context. Um, and also, you always keep in mind, no matter what level you're working in, you always keep in mind the progression of a lesson plan. So you're always thinking about doing things like tapping into background knowledge before you present new material or providing more structured practice before freeform practice or getting students to apply what they've learned to a new situation. All of those basic things, they come into play at every level. 
No. So just basically good teaching. Yeah. No. Well, at this point in the conversation, I always ask, is there anything that you didn't get a chance to say that you really wish you could have said? The only thing is that it seems to me that there's often this kind of perceived disconnect between teaching employability skills and teaching academic skills. And I think it's really important to pull those things together. We are aware of this as teachers, but I don't, I think the learners Mm -hmm. need to be made aware of it, that when they're learning to interpret complex texts and when they're learning to take notes as they listen, and when they're learning to do research, that those are all valuable workplace skills as well as academic skills. And we need to make that connection for them that when employers say, you know, they want people with communication skills and they want people, uh, you know, who are good at teamwork and who have critical thinking skills and problem solving skills, that we are practicing those things and they're getting better at those things as they build their academic skills. And preparing for the workplace isn't just a matter of learning how to write a resume or answering job interview questions. I think that's such an important point. So is there anything that you would like the listeners to walk away with after this podcast, other than all the beautiful bone mows you've shared? Well, if there's anyone listening who's just started out teaching advanced learners, it can be really exciting because they're so much better at communicating than students at lower levels. And you can have a lot of fun, you know, digging into interesting topics. But even though they're advanced, they really do need explicit instruction in dealing with complex reading and listening and writing and that They need to go beyond conversational language and they're capable of conducting and presenting research as long as the task is well organized. I would encourage everyone to work those things into their instruction. Hear, hear. Well, Jenny, I want to thank you so much for taking the time today to talk to me about advanced level learners. And it's been a pleasure having an adult ESL conversation with you. Thanks, Jamie. We love what you do and want to support you in every step of the way. For more useful resources to support your teaching, including sample lessons from Step Forward and the OPD, visit us at www.oup.com backslash ELT backslash Love Adult ESL. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Oxford Adult ESL Conversations.